start off by speaking to you about the importance of patient advocacy and how to get to that stage of your disease and your journey. Um, first of all, how would you describe advocacy? Um, advocacy by definition is an activity by an individual or group that aims to influence decisions within political, economic, and social systems and institutions. In the case of patient, in the case of patient advocacy, these aims would be directed towards patient-centric goals. I mean, that's the official definition, but what we're really talking about is making a difference. Sometimes this is in our own care, self-advocacy, or in the case of how we are referring to today, to making a difference for this, our, our Parkinson's community. So I guess the question arises, do I think of myself as an advocate? Well, it's been 22 years since my diagnosis. And I think I can safely say that much of my time is spent in patient advocacy. But you know, serving the Parkinson's community in whatever small way I can is really has become my passion, but it wasn't always this way. Um, for most of us, it takes time. It takes time to shift from our own diagnosis and experience to that of our community. How does that shift occur? Well, I don't know if you know Mr. Tom Isaacs. He was the founder of Cure Parkinson's Trust in the UK. He was a dear friend and someone I looked up to a great deal. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He um, passed away a few years ago. But he described the journey, the psychological journey that many of us take from a, the time of diagnosis to the time of becoming an advocate. He described it as a time of despair to one of fulfillment. He, he just summarizes in the advocacy pyramid, which I wanna share with you, if I can. If this works. Oh, sorry, I'm not the most technically adept. There it is. Person, you see that? Good. Yeah. Okay. So the advocacy pyramid. So we start at the bottom. Diagnosis. I mean, we all have our stories, and they're as varied and unique as each and every one of us. Um, I was diagnosed at around, I guess it was probably about 28. And I just, uh, as Lynn mentioned, I just completed my residency in family medicine and was expecting my first of three daughters when um, I noticed a tremor in my right pinky finger. And that tremor uh, was on and off. And like any good doctor, I ignored it <laughs> until it got to the point where it became more constant and concerning. And my husband, who's also a physician, kind of picked up on it and said, uh, you better go get that checked out. So reluctantly, I went to see a friend of mine in the clinic I had just joined, um, a neurologist, and he did a bunch of those clinical tests, you know, where they make you walk and they make you, you know, tap your fingers and things like that. And he leaned over the desk and he said, well, I think you have Parkinson's disease. And that's when our friendship ended because I thought, you know, my God, he's, he's pretty unknowledgeable about this whole neurological illness thing. And how can he tell me that I have Parkinson's disease? I'm, does he not know I'm 28? I'm a young woman. And, you know, that, that just goes to show that, you know, even though I was a physician, denial is a powerful, powerful force. But I did accept his offer to go to see the top movement disorder specialist here in our, in our country. And I thought I'd go in and he'd exonerate me from the diagnosis, but instead he confirmed it. <laughs> so there I was, age 28, pregnant, and um, given a diagnosis of a chronic neurodegenerative illness for which there is currently no cure. So what should have been a really joyful and exciting time in my life was instead marred by this unwelcome diagnosis, this unsort of expected trajectory that my life had taken. Now, I recognize that um, my diagnosis, the story of my diagnosis is actually quite um, 
quite different than most. I think that most people have a much more convoluted uh, way of getting diagnosed. Um, so did anyone feel that their diagnosis was a long time coming? I know that a lot of people have had that experience. Oh, yes, I did. Yes? Yes, it took a long, long time. I was paralyzed for a few months and then uh, they still could not pick it up as part of uh, the onset of MS first mm. and after, but that was, um, and I never got a, a final diagnosis. Then um, Parkinson's began to show itself by tremors, as you were mentioning, mm -hmm. and other symptoms. And uh, they had a hard time diagnosing that. And I was still occasionally have when I see a, uh, neurologist whom I haven't seen before, right here in Florida, one in my community. Uh, she says, even though cinnamon has worked on me now for about six years, I guess, um, she says, I still don't, uh, I'm not sure that you have Parkinson. Well, that's kind of frustrating. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you don't want to hear that you have Parkinson's, but I have no other way to handle my situation, which has, right. uh, yeah, as most of the uh, symptoms and behavior of Parkinson, what do you call Parkinsonism or what? Parkinsonism, yeah. yeah. PD, and I'm treated for it as if it's PD because it's got most of the characteristics. So that's, that's where I am. So it's always going to be, I guess, somewhat questionable. It is, I think, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think you're right that it's, it is a difficult diagnosis a lot of times because we don't have a biomarker and it's a clinical exam mm -hmm. is, is how the diagnosis is made. So it's, it's difficult. Well, in my yeah. case, I had a spinal tap and they finally thought they caught it, you know, um, and that it was, at least it appeared definite to one doctor whom I have, whom I've had all along. So there's, you know, I don't know if they ever talk about these things themselves. I'm sure yeah. they do. Yeah. But since we are programmed, it seems to have more and more neurological diseases coming along. I think they'll probably refine the diagnosis somehow. You know, yeah, we're hoping to. Yeah, they'll tighten yeah. it up. Particularly when mixed in with other autoimmune diseases, or I, yeah. my case, MS. So have you had a DAT scan? Oh, yeah, I've had that. And I've had MRIs, I would say, most years for, I've probably had 12 or 15 MRIs over the oh, years. Oh, my. Wow. This, for me, this has been since 1998. Wow. It's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. So and you, what doctor diagnosed you officially um, that you had gone to see? Uh, the movement disorder specialist? Yes. Uh, his name is Dr. Tony Lang. Got it. At Toronto Western. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. He's been my doc for the last 22 years now. <laughs> but so just to go back to this um, advocacy pyramid, the usual reaction to a diagnosis of a progressive um, illness like this is this stage, shock, anger, and denial. And I was admittedly stuck at this stage for a very long time. I would say for almost the 
first decade of my illness, I spent in this anger, fear, and denial. I busied myself with busyness, trying to look after my young family, which I had three daughters by then. Um, you know, how social commitments, my busy practice, just mainly so I could avoid dealing with my diagnosis, to be honest with you. Um, but despite my protests, it felt like my brain had disengaged from my body, uh, lessening my control. The tremor soon moved into my right arm, from my right hand, and then into my left arm, and then my right foot, and then my left foot, um, stiffening my body in the morning. And these are all things I'm sure you've all experienced, cramping my feet to the point where it's difficult to walk, causing significant upper back pain, and, and turning my nights into really restless exhaustion. And there's no escaping it, as you all know. I mean, I mourned at the time where I had to stop assisting my husband in the OR because we used to do that every once in a while, or I had to give up suturing in the urgent care. I hated the fact that I had to tie my medications just really perfectly so that my hands wouldn't shake when I gave immunizations or like taking a blood pressure, even something as simple as that. It infuriated me that the tremor also gave me this sense of nervousness. You know, because I wasn't, I wasn't nervous. I was sure in my knowledge and skills, but it kind of came across that way. And it was extremely difficult, I'll admit, to do what was best for my patients sometimes to help them when I was sort of trying to deal with my, trying to deal with and hide my own symptoms. Oh, and, and it relentlessly followed us. It followed just like it follows every one of you from all aspects of life, from caring for my young children, taking care of my home, to my relationships with friends and family. And during that time, my sole focus was really on the difficulties I was facing on a daily basis and all that I felt I was giving up. I was consumed by thoughts of disability. What did my future hold? Would I be there for my kids? Would I, would I be able to continue with the career I left? Would I be, be able to travel once we retired? And this is probably the shock, anger, and denial is probably the most psychologically stressful stage of this journey. It's a time that we're a bit selfish. We tend to build barriers. We tune out, we have not truly accepted our diagnosis and we're in the belief that no one else could possibly understand what we're going through. And how long does this stage last? Well, that's variable. For me, it took a decade. Um, for others, it, some adapt more you know, quickly and some tend to linger, like I said myself. But what are the needs of, a, of us at this stage? What helps us move onwards from this stage? Well, I think first we talked a little bit about it. It's accuracy and diagnosis because we would really rather believe that it's inaccurate. And right now, because it's clinically based, the diagnosis, we can often say, well, maybe they just didn't know. Just as I said about my first neurologist, well, he didn't know what he was talking about. And also once it occurs, a sympathetic delivery of the diagnosis. Because, you know, as clinicians, I think sometimes we forget that maybe this is the hundredth time that we've delivered this diagnosis, but it's the first time that the patient has heard it. So that compassionate you know, delivery of a diagnosis and, and pr provision of information is really important, access to good information. Does anyone else have suggestions what helped them get through this period of, or the stage of shock, anger, and denial or what they feel would have helped them? I will uh, speak up here. Mm -hmm. um, my name is Beth. I actually am not geographically part of the group, but because of Lynn, I feel completely part of the group. Um, Lynn is what helped me get my diagnosis. Comfortable. I, um, I'm 61. I am, I am still a very healthy person. And in January 26th of this year, I, um, I'm also a nurse practitioner. I noticed in December, a little left-hand tremor, which I, you know, didn't know what to make of it, but I was pretty aggressive in trying to figure it out and got 
because of my connections of where I work, I was able to see the head of um, uh, Parkinson and movement disorder at Georgetown. And uh, so my time from symptom to diagnosis was actually pretty quick. But when mm -hmm. I got the diagnosis, I didn't think I could breathe. And then I met a couple of people, including Lynn and Pat, and uh, somehow it seems like I can do this. That's we powerful. got to thrive. That's right. You know, yeah. It's important. So it's the community that you can find and embrace. That helped you. Anyone yep. else have any suggestions of what helped them get through this sort of initial phase? I can share real quick. For me, once I was diagnosed at the age of 51, um, I've had it now for eight years. Um, the realization that people are far worse off. You can always look and feel bad for yourself, but there are people that are struggling with far more things in life, whether it's finding their next meal or finding a warm bed or taking care of their children, yeah. that you can always feel bad for yourself or just realize that you're dealt a deck of cards and you can't change those and you've got to make the best of it. And with a positive attitude, it can only, you know, help. It's not going to necessarily make it go away or make it better, but it will certainly help. Very true. Very, very true. Yeah. I, Anyone I else I want to share? I can share something uh, similar to that. Sure. In terms of when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed now, this is going to be about 11 years. So I was about age 52. Uh, and people ask me how I managed to stay upbeat about it. But I had lost a sister, not that in early, well, 2003, to Lou Gehrig disease. So when I had my symptoms originally, which was a my pinky tightening up on my left hand as I was typing or do, using a computer at work. Uh, when I heard the diagnosis of Parkinson's, my husband and I were actually both relieved that it's mm -hmm. something we're gonna to learn to live with, but it's not shortening my lifespan or I'm not going to be totally incapacitated, at least right now, not right now. Of course. I have something to add. Yes, Marion. Um, if you were finished, are you finished? Yes. Um, I found for me, writing was really powerful. I joined a writing group that I happened to come upon that was writing for illness and narrative medicine. And the idea that sharing your story and telling your story is a great way to begin to heal. And so I found this group and I became very connected with the people. It was a trusting group with keeping confidences. And I just began to develop my skill of writing and I found it to be very creative and tapping into my inner dialogue. And it helped me come to terms a little bit with shaping my story and what was, what the reality was. That's, that's, a, that's amazing. And you're a very good writer as well. Thank you. Thank I've you. seen your pieces. They're amazing. I appreciate, I appreciate that. I'd, li I'd like to offer the suggestion that everybody keep on trying to find help when you can't find it at first, even in a hospital. I would say, mm -hmm. in, yeah, well, I didn't find it at first. I called the hospital and they didn't really have any kind of, um, I, don't, I don't think they kept track of, the, of, the, of their own patients even in the sense that they thought since there were a number of them that they could be, you know, they could bond with each other and help each other out. Not only did they not have anybody at the hospital who was familiar with the life 
the, the everyday living problems that many many of us have with Parkinson, but they didn't have they didn't have ongoing referrals to another person and another person. So Lynn, you have done a miraculous thing as far as I'm concerned to bring a group to form a group that is cohesive and that right. you know keeps on meeting and, and come to know each other and all that. It's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It, you know what? That it, it helps to get us all together. We learn a lot from each other. And that's actually a perfect segue into the next stage, which is communication. Yeah. Um, communication is a stage where we start to disclose to those around us, our family, friends, or so socially, occupationally, start to talk about it. Now, I hid my diagnosis for years and years and years. And mainly, I I look back, it was more that I was worried about the reaction of other people. You know, I didn't, I'm not the type that wanted a pity party and I felt that's the way my friends and family would react. And I also didn't wanna, um, I unfortunately fell into the stigma of Parkinson's in some way because although I knew it shouldn't be anything I should feel um, uneasy about, I felt that my patients may not understand and they may see me as less competent than I was before I shared that diagnosis with them. I was wrong on both accounts. <laughs> you know, once I actually began to communicate with those that mattered in my life, mainly because I, the disease had progressed to the point where I couldn't hide it anymore and I was expending more energy trying to hide my symptoms rather than share them. I really felt a burden lifted. It, it felt, uh, I, I didn't really even realize it existed, but once I, I disclosed to people and felt the support and love as opposed to pity, it really felt like a burden had lifted off of me. And my patients were fantastic. They were very understanding and their, their you know, um, our relationship didn't change at all um, at, at, that, at that point in time. And it's at this stage, that stage of communication that we begin to recognize that the reason we feel that no one understands how we feel is because we haven't communicated um, our experience to them. So they can't understand something they don't understand that we haven't shared with them. At this point in our journey, we begin to understand that a burden shared is a problem halved. And communication, as is, um, was just discussed, becomes a very therapeutic and hope starts to germinate. And unlike the stage before, you crave a lot of information at this point and, and time with your healthcare professionals. Now, disclosure is a big issue for a lot of people, disclosure to family, friends, to the workplace. For me, as I mentioned, it was actually therapeutic to, to discuss things with my social, my girlfriends and what was going on. Many of my social group or physicians, so they kind of knew something was going on, but they didn't want to ask me until I was willing to disclose and talk about it. Has anyone found that um, disclosure has been an issue and what have they done to overcome that? Or what, does anyone have any advice for other people that are having trouble with disclosure? Sonia, I had the experience of um, being diagnosed and not disclosing even to my own children for eight or nine months because of just stuff that was going on in our lives. And when I finally did, it was the biggest relief. It was, yeah. I couldn't believe the weight that came off my shoulders just right. by telling the kids. It was, it was great. Right. That's did very, you, very true. Did anybody find disbelief in their family or in close friends? people who would not acknowledge that this was a possibility. Because, because at first I was not too obviously afflicted with, with tremors and, and such obvious, mm -hmm. you know, parts, parts of Parkinson. 
and I had the experience that people did not want to believe this at all, mm. including, including my husband, who was yeah. not a caretaker type, and he did he didn't want to admit to it because he didn't want to be caught in that web where he would be expected to care for someone who was ill and likely to be ill the rest of her life. Paul, Paul, what did yeah. you want to say? Well, I was going to say I never really had a problem hiding it. I did have people that didn't believe it because even now I'm not uh, noticeably symptomatic. Mm -hmm. But my wife was a nurse, and um, first thing she did was have me sign up for um, trials. <laughs> so I did that from day one. And that really helped a lot because I got to talk to top people in the field. Uh, a lot of us know Dr. D'Agostine. She spent several hours with myself and my wife just talking to me about it. And of course, everyone has questions. But I found a lot of people don't know what Parkinson's is. And, and that was... Dad? You'll, you'll learn about these things when you get them. Yeah. So let's maybe move on to the next stage. Thank you for sharing all that with us. Um, so the next stage is acceptance, education, and consolidation. So this is a key stage in our journey. It's a stage where you begin to accept that you are not the same necessarily person that you once were in some ways, and undoubtedly life has changed. You begin concentrating on what the new you is all about. And this lesson, like most of the lessons in life, didn't come easy to me. As I mentioned, you know, most of my early years with this diagnosis were really spent in physical, not just physical, but emotional turmoil. And I was very angry at my disease and sort of fearful of what the future held with no regard for how inconvenient it was for me. <laughs> the Parkinson's progressed relentlessly and there really was no way to escape it. And eventually I came to a crossroad. Um, I grew tired of the person I was becoming. I was normally a very happy, joyful person, but I rarely laughed anymore. I didn't find the joy in life when I had everything to be joyful about really. I lived in a state of perpetual pessimism and I didn't like it. I didn't like, it's not who I wanted to be. So after a great deal of introspection and taking a real hard look at my health, I began to see that regardless of how much I protested, my reality wasn't gonna change anytime soon. No bargaining with the powers of be could change that reality. I wasn't gonna wake up one day all flexible and supple with no tremor. Um, you know, that wasn't, as much as I longed for that, that wasn't gonna happen. Um, it wasn't a battle I could choose because it had sort of already chosen me. And the only thing I did have control over was how I faced the challenges that this disease was going to bring into my life. Um, and I was beginning then at that point, not to intellectually, because I knew I had Parkinson's disease from a medical standpoint, but emotionally it began to accept this disease. And now when I say acceptance, uh, you know, don't misunderstand, I'm not talking about complacency. I'm talking about the type of acceptance that allows you to move forward to move beyond your diagnosis that allows you to sort of take control of your future path. And this, this type of acceptance will fuel your desire to educate yourself on your disease and its, and its management and allows you to become an active participant in your management um, because knowledge really is power in a disease like Parkinson's. And once you're able to accept this disease um, and educate yourself about this disease, uh, your focus then sort of starts to turn outwards and into the, into the community that you belong to. And this is what we call the stage of, um, oh, acceptance, sorry. 
engagement and participation. So your outlook at this point becomes more of a wider issue, not just a personal one. You start to engage with others, listen to their stories, understand how powerful sharing your voice and your story, someone mentioned, Miriam, I think was talking about when she writes, so sharing your stories with others, how much that can influence and, and help out other people in your community. You recognize that immediate bond. I mean, I felt that with many of you that I've just met today, you there's an immediate bond that you form with somebody that has that you're sharing the same sort of life experience with. That's a very powerful bond and can get you through a lot of, of, of down days. So you become more engaged in the Parkinson's community. Perhaps this takes the form of joining a support group like this in person or online, um, working with specific Parkinson's organizations or taking interest in a particular aspect of, of Parkinson's disease like clinical trials and recruitment and that sort of thing. I mean, for me, I'm sort of completely immersed in the Parkinson's community, but earlier I found a lot of comfort information and support online. I still do Facebook groups and, and that, that sort of thing. So it's engagement and participation um, is, is really an important um, thing. I mean, as my friend Tom said, Tom Isaac said, he said, at this stage you go from being needy to being needed. And that's a really important transition to make. The time where you begin to recognize that the quality of life is really what's important for you and others until there's a cure. And that really, once participation, that's really the stage of advocacy. Mm -hmm. You start to begin to devote much time to the business of Parkinson's disease. It becomes your focus, your passion. This is the space where I've spent a lot of years and it is my passion, hopefully not too many more because our ultimate goal is to get to this top one, which is the cure. So hopefully <laughs> our work will be done sooner rather than later. Um, but uh, once you become an advocate, other stakeholders, as well as others with Parkinson's start seeking your input, you'll find it's a time of influence where your input can actually impact patient care and policy through involvement with pharmaceutical companies, patient organizations, or scientific led in initiatives. Your insight, urgency, passion, focus, fundraising, empathy, participation, whatever you can give, all lead to tangible results and empower those around you. And like I said, hopefully we'll reach our end goal of this pyramid, which is the cure. I'm just gonna stop sharing for a moment so we can see everybody better. Um, so why is this advocacy important to share? Well, I found it serves as kind of as a visual representation of our journey, the one that we all potentially embark on to whatever level our endpoint is, hopefully to the top. It's a nice way to sort of generally frame our own life experience with this disease and it also allows us to demonstrate to others who may be in the early stages of this experience that there's something beyond it, especially that time of, of anger and denial and, and fear, that there is something beyond those feelings, that with enough time, introspection and support like you have here, they will ultimately move beyond the early stages and progress to one, towards ones that will allow for a greater degree of understanding and purpose. Um, we all have the potential to become advocates. I'm sure all of you are advocates for sure in some way being involved with this community right here. I mean, I can see it when you show support to others that's advocating for their well-being um, as such. And, you know, Lynn is obviously a very strong advocate. I know the amount of time and, and passion she puts behind her roles. Um, so we, I mean, we all have the potential to become advocates and it'll vary from person to person. Some it'll be more recognizable face in the community taking on visible roles like 
being speak being asked to speak at events. Um, but in my humble opinion, really, those that advocate in more unseen ways, encouraging policy changes, influencing clinical trial participation, fundraising for research and community care, setting up support groups or being part of one, giving a voice to the voiceless in so many unique ways. Those are truly the advocates whose actions and intentions will benefit us all. And we need more advocates. We need you all to continue your work or to be inspired to take on something new. We need you to join PD Avengers, which is a global group of advocates working together to end this disease. And there's a palpable sense of urgency in the community. I, I don't know if you felt it, I certainly have. Patients are not are fueled by not only urgency, but also by hope. And it is through this that, again, my friend Tom said, the patients can become sufficiently educated, sufficiently empowered, sufficiently determined, and sufficiently resourced to become an indispensable and constructive force for progress in the pursuit of a cure for Parkinson's. And so that's what I wanted to share with you. I'm certainly open to the discussion. I think that you all have a lot to share and, and wisdom to, to, to give us all. So I turn it back to Lynn to open up for discussion. That was so inspiring. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. That was oh, so <laughs> amazing. Oh, oh thanks. Incredible. Um, you know, does anybody uh, have questions for? I do actually. Sonia, um, I yes. would love to get your, your perspective on something that we've all been told when we were diagnosed that there's going to be major breakthroughs, possibly cures or solutions to preventing it from. I guess a Clementine. Haven't you been hearing that mm -hmm. for a few years? Sorry. 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 I said, haven't haven't we all been hearing that for a few years? Well, that's what I was about to ask. When I was diagnosed, they said in the next five to ten years, yeah. the likelihood is that there would be a cure. There would be, you know, uh, solutions on getting the disease to stop progressing, and that has not happened in any which way, to my knowledge. And I wonder, from your point of view, being a medical doctor and the unfortunate circumstance of also having Parkinson's, what your inside thoughts are on that exact situation? That's a great question, Jeff, like really an, an insightful one. And I think you're right um, that we have been hearing, Judith, the, this mantra of it's gonna be the next five or 10 years, or 10 years time. And the problem, uh, I will say this, to sort of short answer your question, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic about what the future holds in terms of treatments. I think a lot of things are coming down the pipeline. When I was first diagnosed 20 years ago, when they were starting that mantra of, you know, it's going to be 10 years before we figure it out. They were only talking about dopamine symptoms at that time. Parkinson's was very much still a motor disease. Not of the non-motor symptoms weren't known. The complexity of the disease was not known. We're all trying to replace dopamine. And if we could just replace the dopamine, that would, that would cure the, the disease. We know that's not true. We know it's a much more complicated disease. There are a lot of neurotransmitters. So it affects a whole body. It's a whole body disease, not just a motor disease. And unfortunately you can't cure what you don't know. So the whole thing now is concentrating on what's causing this disease. What's, what, what, is there some pathophysiology in the body that we can target our, our um, um, medications towards or our treatments towards that will help. And that's coming, that there's a lot of outside the box um, research happening, a lot of it funded by Fox because they tend to do things that are high risk and and and, and fund those sorts of um, um, projects. There's a lot of uh, people looking at alpha-synuclein and the role that it plays in the pathology of the disease and attacking the alpha-synuclein is a misfolding of a protein that we find in the brain of people with Parkinson's disease. So the, the thought is if we can stop that protein clump from happening, maybe we can help 
to cure the disease. There's a lot of work being done in genetics so that we understand more about genetically transmitted Parkinson's disease, which might give us insight into the broad Parkinson's disease situation. People aren't talking about dopamine anymore. They're talking about other ways of combating the disease. Mm. So there's a lot we could talk about research, but the long and the short of it is I'm hopeful. I'm more optimistic now than I have been in a long time. I think that things are coming, but I won't put a timeline on it. And you know, <laughs> improved treatments have already started, you know, that's, happening too. So that, you know, that's right. It's like diabetes, you know, they may come out before the cure with better treatments, which I'll take. And I know all of us will agree that that would to improve Absolutely. our lives or, or hold back the progression. I mean, so there's a huge, um, you know, broad spectrum of, of, of ways that they could help find improved treatments and then hopefully ultimately a cure. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lynn. I mean, I think of it in two ways. I was talking more of disease modification, but then while we're waiting for that to happen, we all need quality of life. I mean, that's all it's all about. It's quality of life. That's the one thing that's important to us. And Lynn's correct. There's a lot of, um, a lot of treatments that are being directed now towards non-motor symptoms, which affect quality of life for patients even more than the motor symptoms. Donia? Donia. To what degree do you attribute your ability to maximize quality of life in the last 20 years? Mm -hmm. How have I maximized my quality of life? Yeah, for the last 20 years. I mean, you have um, children and... Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the type of Parkinson's I have, I think, is fairly slow progressing. I think that's been one thing. I, I think though that um, staying involved actively in things that I love to do has been um, really beneficial for me. Um, being overly busy now compared to even when I was practicing has been more of a, a grace for me than anything else, being passionate about what I do. Exercise has played a huge role. Um, I don't like to exercise more than anybody else does, um, but I force myself because I know that I'm much better off if I exercise um, regularly and stretch my muscles out and, and that sort of thing. Cardiovascular exercise as well. So exercise has been a big, big thing for me. Being engaged, I think is, is also a big thing and having the family support. I mean, I'm blessed to have a very strong family support network with my children as well as my husband has been a, a rock for me and that's been very valuable as well. And, and I, I honestly, I think focusing outward on other people has been rather than, you know, getting lost in, in the down days. I mean, it, we all have down days, but trying to sort of pull myself up from sheer stubbornness has been helpful. Has meditation been a, a, an assist? Sorry, say again, David? Has been an assist to your managing your quality of life? Has what been an assist? Prescriptions. Prescriptions, medications. Yes. Yes. Um, I think the one of the advantages I had is that I could sort of, I guess, manipulate my medications a little bit easier than having to go into the doctor to do it. Although we all should go to the doctor before we touch our medications, I must preface saying that. Um, but I'm not on um, anything that, that they're thinking may be disease modifying. I take um, Cinemat like everybody else. I take... Um, a long acting one called Stilevo and I take amantadine for dyskinesias and that's about it. I've been um, evaluated for DBS, but I just feel like I'm not at that stage yet. I feel like I can manage things medication wise without having to go to surgery, but surgery is always an option for people as well as they, as they progress. Sonia on the carbidopa levodopa, 
Yes. Uh, is it immediate release or continuous release? Uh, the one I take, I take both. So the Stilevo has a long acting form of, of carbolevodopa. And then I take the regular um, short acting in between. Do you know if those are 50, 200s or, or 125? Um, there, there are different numbers on whether it's the long acting or the short, isn't that right? Yeah, one's called, well, there's different brand names for it as well. Yeah. Um, my short acting is 100 over 25 milligrams. 25, 100. Yeah, for my short acting. But there's, yeah, there's a variety of dosages. Is it scary for any of you when the dose is increased? So you know that you're now getting towards the end of the range, you know, you can be helped by sediment. So I personally am a little bit frightened when I have to go up and dose. I have to have it five times a day now instead of four. And I know that I can't keep, there, there's not, very much further up the scale that I'm, it's possible to do it. I guess, if that's the information I believe I have heard. Well, uh, is some, someone else speaking? No. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Well, well I mean, there's, there's a variety of, of classes of medication that you can take that are not just dopamine replacements. There, there are other medications that are out there. One thing I want people to understand about dopamine replacement is it's not something to fear. There was a time when um, people used to say, don't take dopamine replacement because it's going to make you, you know, it, the effects are going to wear off and you're going to get to the point where it doesn't work anymore. That's proven false. It doesn't do that. What happens is that while you're on it, your disease progresses. So you need to take more because your disease is progressing, not because it's becoming less effective. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a fine balance. Um, it's a fine balance between, you know, taking enough medications to help your symptoms versus getting side effects from the dosage, uh, the dosage that you're taking. So it's not an easy thing, medical management of Parkinson's disease. But you know, there are several classes of medications still out there that you you may be able to take. Do any of you others um, take selegiline? Anybody anybody recognize that medication? Spelled S E L E G I N I N E, selegiline. That, that, that's one of the medications that are given to many people with uh -huh. Parkinson's. Okay. Yeah. I don't hear it mentioned. That's why I'm asking, because I do take that. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else have a question? Sonia, what do you like to do when you work out? <laughs> I mentioned I don't like to work out very much, but I do every day. Um, these days, we're, I'm going on hikes with my husband uh, to get my cardiovascular. If, I, if it's a cold day and I don't feel like it, I'd use the treadmill just to walk, just walk fast paced for about 40, 45 minutes. And then um, I recently joined a service through my iPhone and my um, Apple Watch called Apple Plus. So that's given me a real variety of exercises that I can do yoga and hit hit, uh, hit um, routines and strength training and core training. So I try and sort of um, keep a, a variety of 
I keep it a, a variety of activities. Otherwise I get bored very easily and I don't really, but, but the most important thing I think to remember is we have to take cardiovascular exercise of some sort, strength training, balance and flexibility. These are really important things to address with your exercise routine. And it really doesn't matter what you do as long as you keep moving. And then I have another question, another topic. I'm so excited about PD Avengers. And, and I know you're one of the co-founders, which is just amazing. And it's got a huge international presence. And I just wanted to quickly hear what your vision is for PD Avengers. And, and like, where do you see this, this group going that's really gaining a lot of momentum? Yeah, we're about less, thank you for asking that, Lynn. We're about less than a year old. We launched, I think, officially in July of last year. And PD Avengers is basically a global group of advocates, Parkinson's advocates, all working together to end Parkinson's disease. So kind of an easy mission statement, I guess. Um, but we were inspired by the book, I don't know if you've read it, Ending Parkinson's Disease, um, that came out last year. And as we were looking through the back of the book, we noticed there were pages and pages of action, you know, points of action. We thought, well, who's going to do this? We thought, well, might as well take that on. So we formed the PD Avengers at that time. Um, as PD Avengers, where do I see it going? I hope it continues to grow. We have over 3,200, 3,300 people signed up. It's for anybody to sign up. If you're a patient, your care partner, your family, friend, researcher, clinician, anybody who cares about the cause of of Parkinson's disease and um, creating an urgency, sense of urgency behind it. We work towards three pillars. We work towards advocacy. So um, we've done things like uh, the Red Letter Campaign. I don't know if any of you were a part of that, <coughs> excuse me, where we um, had, we supported um, Dr. Dorsey's um, uh, pledge to send red letters to the White House. And, sorry. In it, he was asking for improve, uh, increasing the funding for Parkinson's disease by tenfold, keeping telemedicine as a valid way of contacting or dealing with patients, and also banning uh, environmental pollutants like paraquat and trichloroethylene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of our advocacy piece. We've also um, petitioned the UN to recognize Parkinson's as uh, Parkinson's Day because they don't recognize Parkinson's Day or Parkinson's Awareness Week petition them and we're just trying to grow our numbers because there's power in numbers the more advocates we can get or people that care people that sign up then, then you can go to places like the white house and say well a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand people who care about this disease want this done and it gives us a sense of leverage i think the second part is um equity or wellness i could tell you tragic stories tragic tragic stories i mean we, we talk about medication there are places in this world where they have no medication no dopamine replacement Speaking with my friends in Uganda and Cameroon, there are stories of people that have been, you know, in a catatonic state in bed for four years because they don't have simple things like cinemat or dopamine replacement shunned by their family and friends, often considered to be cursed and have contagious disease. These people are really suffering and we hope to some way um, bring equity of care globally. You know, people have the right to have access to general, to, to physical, um, wellness. They have the right to have access to these medications that are, are have been around for over 50 years and, and they don't. And, and that's something we aim to choose uh, to change. And also within our own countries, you know, there are marginalized groups in our own countries that don't receive the type of care or information education they need to, to get. And the third um, sort of pillar of the PD Avengers is research. And 
the importance of having the patient voice and patient involvement at all stages of research from inception. So the direction of research, we gotta tell them what matters to us um, so that they can help us develop treatments in that direction to the planning of the clinical trials, to the recruitment of the clinical trials, to, to the dissemination of the information afterwards, the communication to you all or in the patient community about clinical trials and the results and how that can affect you. So we're hoping to move it forward. Um, as I mentioned, we have over 33, 32, 3,300 people signed up now. We, and that's in 64 different countries around the world, which is kind of cool. And we partnered with um, uh, 54, 55 organizations, partner, Parkinson's organizations, including Michael J. Fox Foundation, Davis Finney Foundation, Brian Grant Foundation, um, Parkinson's Foundation, APDA. They, they've all sort of signed on to, to work with us because we're not, we're not a charity, we don't raise money. There's nothing like that. We just wanna bring collaboration to the, to the um, field so that people aren't working in their silos. There's no duplication of resources and money. We're not wasting time and money. We're getting people to work together um, to, to, to you know, get our common goal done and that's to end this disease. That's my little plug. <laughs> Sonia, I would like to say how grateful I am to you and the other co-founders of this group, because when I read the book Ending PD last March, and I looked at what was in the back of that book, and I said, oh my God, there's so many, you don't, you don't even know where to start. There's so many things to do in so many organizations, and who's going to be in charge? And thank goodness you guys decided to take the bull by the horns. So yeah, I don't know if we got... I don't know if we knew what we were getting into. Every day passes, there's something new to add. But it's you know I'm passionate about it. I hope that we continue to make progress. It is so everybody bad. here has signed up to be a PD Avenger. PDAvengers.org. Yeah. Yes, and we, we and many of us sent the red letter in. So I mean, we're, oh, that's great. So you know what, the group does so much, and in including inspires hope in all of us. I mean, it's just it's just like it's a force. You know, it's a force. It's a groundswell. It's a groundswell that is, is admirable. Well, I think, that, thank you for that, Lynn. I think that that's, you know, we've been able to um, send people to the moon. We've been able to, you know, make HIV not a death sentence anymore, right. turn it right. into a chronic disease. We can do this. And right. um, we, just need, we just need to become that loud, uncomfortable voice that doesn't shut up, <laughs> keeps, keeps going forward and, and expressing our, our needs. We need to become a little louder. Yeah. Make this a warp speed, you know, like the vaccination warp speed. Yes, speed. yes, and we can do that. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so very exciting. Well, we're always here for you. If you need any need like any volunteers, or you know, you need us to help you in any way, shape, or form. You know, besides signing up, and you know, we want to all get involved and help you in any way we can. Oh, be careful! I'll be phoning you. <laughs> And Lynn, we know you don't do much now, so. <laughs> well, notice I said we, I didn't say me. <laughs> and Sonia, you're of course welcome to join us each Tuesday night. So. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I feel like I found a new group of friends. I'd yes, love to. We would love for you to join yeah, us. Yeah, I know I will, honestly. This is a yeah. great time too. That's what's so special about this. I mean, you, you, you don't have to fly to Connecticut. You can just, right. you know, just hit a link. That's true. That's so true. Okay, I'll put you on our email list if you're okay with that. You I would love that. Company, but, no, yeah. I would love that. Honestly, I will come back. Sonia and Lynn or all of you, is there any prospect that uh, 
your group, our group, will go after some of the things that are now recognized probably cause diseases such as cancer and PD and so forth and make a real difference given the business um, uh, resistance to any of this. Going against chemicals, for example. Yeah. Kind of appearing that chemicals are, are uh, uh, causing all kinds of diseases, disease, even new diseases that are, that are creeping yeah. out. Yeah, there's a huge pull um, to have Paraquat, which is a, a common pesticide used in the States, as well as Canada, um, for disease control. Um, and uh, trichloroethylene, which is used in a lot of industrial lubricants and dry cleaning, both have been associated with increased risk for Parkinson's disease. And we have a Paraquat working group um, at PD Avengers where we're trying to figure out how we can manage to get it under control and, and stop its use. So that's what was part of the red letter campaign. Um, unfortunately, um, last year, Fox had also taken on the call to try and, and we're working with them as well to ban Paraquat. And instead it was renewed. Its usage was renewed for the next decade or so. So I, uh, the, the feeling is you have to go state by state now and see if we can make some difference at the state level. But yes, you're hundred percent right. I mean, it would be wonderful if we could get rid of these meds or these chemicals and maybe prevent someone from embarking down this journey in the first place. That would be well, great. If you, if you tell golfers that because of that terrible, uh, the roundup, for example, mm -hmm. that it's gonna add to their, um, chance of get of either getting cancer or some other disease but do you have feel you have the strength or can build it to um have the courage to go against business interests mm -hmm. i think we're all yeah. stuck on that matter mm -hmm. Whether, you know all the things that chemicals for example cause can you hear me i don't seem to be heard can anyone hear me this is Jennifer. i can't see you i wonder if anyone had heard of EWG, it's on my email constantly. It's this organization that talks about uh, the toxic chemicals that are to take them. Um, have you, you might look it up, it's EWG and it's very- EWG, okay, yeah. and, thank you. And, um, uh, Judith, it's Judith, isn't it? Judith, uh, you were asking if anyone else um, was not diagnosed immediately or something like that. And I certainly have never been properly diagnosed. And everyone else seems to take Cinemet and gets help from it. And I've never, it's never worked for me. Mm. So at different times, I've just been given something called Ritari, which mm -hmm. is meant the same, you know, the same uh, carbidopa-levodopa, but so far that's not working either. So it's, I don't know what, you. all you guys don't look as if you have anything wrong with you. I mean, you all look so great. So uh, is it because you're taking Cinemet or are you taking something else that's magical? <laughs> I, think, I think it's just important that you, you stay in touch with the movement disorder doctor because they have all sorts of ways of combining medications and 
you know, in different ways and, and you know, they never give up. And, and I'm sure that, you know, if you just make sure you go to a movement disorder doctor and follow up with yeah, them. I am, that's how I just, it was with the latest uh, medication called Ritari. Has anyone heard of that? Yeah. Yes. Jeanette, are you seeing a neurologist, a general neurologist or a movement disorder specialist particularly? Movement disorder, but I've seen many of them because- Oh, have you? Connecticut. Now I'm in Brooklyn. So I would have six months in Connecticut and six months here. So each time I go to a different disorder person, hoping that they would perhaps come up with something else, but in the same uh, diagnosis, well, everyone sort of, oh, you were also asking Judith if anyone didn't believe you. And my daughter doesn't believe it. She doesn't think I have Parkinson's and I know very well that I have. That's, that's, that's hard to deal with though. My own family, some of them won't believe that I actually do have it because other people disagree and you know show reasons that they don't think I have it. Well, she just doesn't want to face up to it. I think that's all. I mean, that's the <laughs> thing. And she doesn't believe in normal medications. When I say normal, I mean, she's into, um, um, what is it? Well, not, not. Homeopathic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I couldn't think of the words. Thank you. That's one of the problems. Yeah. Parkinson's is you can't find words. And I'm always running out of words when I'm trying to say <laughs> something. But that's, uh, that. It's very interesting to know if there's a scale at which at some point on the scale, you're diagnosed with Parkinson's. Up till that time, you're going towards it, I guess, but um, you're well, not it, officially diagnosed. So, so I, I think that you know, I, I think that it gets complicated with families sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, trying so. to communicate with them and you know, getting them to understand and accept the, that we have a diagnosis. And um, but I think you just keep keep the dialogue going. You yeah. know? And um, you know, yeah. Keep the dialogue going, educate them, maybe give them some resources like right. the Fox Foundation website, for instance, right. um, that they can go to to read more about and become educated. And sometimes I, I also get these, you know, well-meaning friends and family that might send me something naturopathic, which I don't know if it works or not. And um, a lot of it isn't tested the same way our, our other medications are. So I'm not saying it doesn't work. But if I don't think that it's for me, then I just simply say thank you for the information I'll Right. take it into consideration and then right. you just do what you feels right, that's right. Yeah, that's what they're there trying to help you know it's not that they mean well yeah they mean well yeah the problem is that i can't say oh your suggestion doesn't work whereas mine does because mine which is uh you know carbidopa levodopa doesn't work for me it doesn't right. work it's yeah a little difficult to argue about it mm -hmm. yeah yeah well, you know, just staying in close doc, um, touch with your movement disorder doctor and, you know, they, they have many, many different types of medications, different classifications. Well, they do experiment with you. I mean, I feel like I'm being experimented with. Oh, that didn't work. Try this. Well, this but I think they're just trying to help you alleviate your symptoms. Mm -hmm. I understand that. No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not being yeah. angry with them. I'm just saying they don't. Any better. 
I mean, they, they don't. And that's what, because Jeanette, we don't have a biomarker for this disease. Unlike, you know, diabetes where you can do a blood test and say, okay, your sugar level's high, you've got diabetes or, oh, I take your blood pressure and it's high, you've got blood pressure because it's above this, this number. We unfortunately don't have anything like that for Parkinson's disease. And that's where the research is really concentrating. We've got really big trials going on, PPMI studies, one of them, where they're looking to find biomarkers. Because if we could tell someone like you, yes, you have the disease or no, it's not. I mean, that would be a huge relief because one, you know how to treat, we, they know how to treat you. And, and also for you to know one way or another, living in that state of limbo is not, it's not easy. I think when you're in a situation like this where you're not happy with your medications or you know you feel like you have symptoms that are not being treated, it's kind of good to keep a diary of your you know, um, symptoms to track you know what, what if the medication if it's you know, on or off or in relation to the medications that you are taking. The APDA has a symptom tracker, which is an app which um, I you know I, actually I have I want I would like to try to, to incorporate that into my my mm -hmm. daily routine, but there's many, you know, maybe you want to try that. And then when you go see your movement disorder doctor, you have like a diary, oh, really? you show oh. them the symptom tracker where you kind of see where your bad time oh, yeah. periods of time during a day are. And so that they can help you in a better way. Right from the time I came across you, you've been so helpful. Oh. It's my pleasure. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I care about all of you. Well, I can tell you do. You're a very caring person. So. Yes. Thank you. Anybody else have any comments? Oh, before this, I'm gonna before everybody signs off. I'm gonna we're having the social coming up. So, um, you know, we're having a social at uh, Waveney Park in New Canaan, and that's coming up on Sunday, May sixteenth. And it's going to be from 1.30 to 4. Paul, do you want to kind of say a few words about that? Well, we're just trying to, uh, you know, I keep putting uh, emails out about it to remind people. And it's just a uh, time to get together. Um, as a lot of you know, I've been making walking sticks and canes and have a lot of artwork uh, that all you have to do is make a donation to Parkinson's Body and Mind. And uh, you can have it. <laughs> So I will, I will have some of it there, but I've also set up a website that I'm working on yeah, um, yeah. as soon as I can inventory all of my art that uh, I'm trying to move. So, um, yeah, so, yeah. So bring your mask, your folding chair, and, you know, we'll have snacks and drinks and we can chat and we can, you know, talk and we can tell stories and, and it'll be nice to see each other and it'll be, and it'll be outside, it'll be flowers and, It'll be wonderful to see each other in a safe way. And, and it's also, we're also going to have a Tai Chi demonstration for anybody who wants to just try it out. And, and I'm going to bring a twister game so we can play twister. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> and bring whatever keeps you in balance so you don't fall. I don't want to see anybody in the group or any other person either. <laughs> no, I mean, it's actually, like I said last week, it's, it's right there by the parking lot. So you don't have far to walk. So don't worry about that. And there'll be plenty okay. of us to help. So don't, you know, if you're coming with a walker or a wheelchair, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll all be there to help one another. So and anyone who, anyone who doesn't have trouble walking should go to one of the further out parking lots. So there's, That's a good idea. Yeah. So there's plenty of room for those who need the help. And, uh, and 
And don't bring those pot brownies. You know. <laughs> oh, you what? Yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You no, any- you're not. <laughs> Paul, Paul, do you have anyone in your group whom you know can kind of uh, adapt certain things that can help people to walk, even with um, my stroller? Yeah, with my, what do you call it? Your, your walker? walker. My, my walker, yeah. If Because I have another handicap, which is, I was paralyzed, so my one leg doesn't work. It, it works a little bit, but doesn't yeah. doesn't support the other side of me. So it's yeah. always awkward. But if somebody were good at making uh, gadgets, I guess you'd say maybe, or adaptations to what we now have to help us walk, such as um, the walkers, um, they could figure out a way, because I've figured it out, but I'm, I'm not able to make such a thing, to help the other leg or whichever part of you doesn't work. If you, if you put an assist on it, it can help a lot. Somebody who's good at that kind of thing. Most of that research is being done by the military, actually, in the yeah. VA. Yeah. Um, they, they've done some remarkable things. Uh, I think they're called exoskeletons. Or oh, yeah. They're, awesome. they're mm-hmm. actually yeah. devices you wear that are mechanical that can help you walk. Unfortunately, oh. they're unusually expensive. Yeah. But all, all I make, I take my little dogs for a walk in a forest behind our property and I pick up sticks and I make canes and walking sticks. Nice. <laughs> so they're not really sophisticated. Right. Things can be learned in, in college uh, classrooms when they're studying design and so forth. Um, and they're made, what, what do you call it when things are not real, but they're, they're prototype as if real. Virtual right. reality. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can have young people who are love to do this kind of thing and are good at fooling with this and that. Yeah. They can come up with things like that, but you can't get a hold of them. They're not allowed to sell them. The university can't give out the plans and the military can't. So it seems that it's kind of impossible to get any help from people who are able to devise these yeah. ways to, to, you know, to lift your leg, for example. Yeah, there's a lot. Just a thought on that colleges. The biomedical engineers often do that for different organizations. Yeah, you're right. They take on a project and that's their project for a year or that's for graduation or whatever. Yeah. So um, you could contact the engineering departments of the you know top engineering schools and see if somebody wants to take that on as a project. That's yeah. a good point. Now, before we close, is, is there are a lot of people that signed on um, after we started. Is there anybody here for the first time that would like to introduce themselves? Okay. Okay. Just want to make sure that everybody feels. I just want to say I'm Donna Ulrich. Thank you so much to Jeff for inviting me. My father has Parkinson's, so um, I joined later. Sorry for running around, but um, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I appreciate it. Glad you got some a lot of information. Thank you for joining. Us. Yeah. Welcome. Great. Yeah. So so mark your calendars for for May 16th. That's, that'll be really a lot of fun. And, um, um, you know, um, check, 
check the email. There's a lot of great information. There's a lot going on. Um, the next meeting will be May 4th. It'll be the Care Partner Support Group meeting. Um, and um, also the APDA is having a, a, a virtual annual PD symposium every day this week between two and three, they have different speakers. And Leon Maiton is one of the speakers this week. I'm not sure which day, but between two and three. I think it was today, actually. Was it was it on today, today, I believe. Oh, well, oops. <laughs> oops. <laughs> Lynn, is the picnic dog friendly? Oh, yes. Yes. But okay. it, it must be on a leash. Must be on okay. a leash. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's fine. I think that's fine. Yeah, and there's uh, Waveney is really beautiful. They got the big lawn and then they beautiful. have um, hiking trails and there's a bathroom. Um, there's, it's, you know, that's fairly close that, you know, we can go to also. So it's good. Lovely. My daughter was married there. Yeah. So we'll, I'll bring a frisbee, twister. <laughs> oh boy! And, and we'll, we'll have a you know we'll have a good time. We'll chat and catch up. It'll be good. And then Paul's walking sticks will be, and then we'll snacks and water. <laughs> It'll be good. Yeah. Well, thanks, Lynn. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to Thank see you. Lynn. Thank you all for tuning in. Thanks, if any of you need to get in touch with me, you can get me through my website, unshakablemd.com or through Lynn. Okay. Yeah, okay. Thank, Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Sonia. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Lynn. Enjoy it. Keep smiling. Thanks, Lynn. You're welcome. Lynn, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. The symposium. How do I'm not? Don't seem to be on that. Uh, You're not. Are you? Are you not getting my emails? No. I didn't get that one. You okay. didn't get that one. Okay. You know what, Jeanette? Let me see. Hold on. Stay on. Jeanette, let me just look up and see if I have your. Let me see if I have your email. Hold on. Hold on. Jeanette, have you by chance used the sentiment in its different strengths? I mean, it, it, there's one that I use for a long time that it has long range effects. I mean, until the, the, your medication period is up. The other works much, much more quickly and, and is used up sooner, I guess. But have you, have you done that? Well, the, the one that I was just prescribed, I don't know. That seems to be one that's fairly. Jeanette, what's your what's your email? It's JYP. JYP. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm sure you're on the list. JYP at Pertz at p e r t z dot org. Okay, I know I've asked you before. Okay, and then also, do you both know each other? Judith and Jeanette? No. Well, um, I've seen Jeanette before on your own this program. I, I think the two of you would be it would be nice for you to exchange phone numbers. Yeah. Well, sure, we could do that. I think you, yeah. So because you you know, I think you both would um you you both seem to get along really well and can you be buddies. Okay. Where yeah. do you live, Judith? Not that it matters really. Excuse me? Where do you live? Greenwich, Connecticut, usually, but I'm I'm in Florida now because I have to stay out of Connecticut for a certain number of months. And Jeanette, you moved from Darien to Brooklyn. Uh, I used to be in Rowayton, yeah, right. and mm -hmm. I had to sell my house, so I'm very unhappy about that. 
Uh, I'm in Park Slope in Brooklyn. So in Brooklyn. Yeah. Boy, that's a different area code altogether. Wow. It's certainly different. Yeah, but you know, it might, might be nice to share numbers with each other and I'll be glad to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we we could talk about our mutuality. Yeah. <laughs> Every day we're taking my medicines. And we, you don't, I take it. We anyway, it we'll talk about chat? this another time. Judith, should we put it on the chat? Yeah, put it on the chat. Do you know put how to do that? that? Judith, do you know how to do that? No. You, right, I'm going to show you something. It'll be very fun. <laughs> okay. Right, so hit chat. See chat in the bottom in the middle. I need a private lesson here. Yeah, no, I'll give you a private okay, lesson. Okay, there we go. Chat. Chat. And then you look for Jeanette. See um, Jeanette. No, I don't see Jeanette here. Hmm. All right, so wait a minute. So what you do is, oh, wait, see on the bottom, there's a blue box. It says, in the bottom, it'll say direct message. No, it doesn't say that anywhere here. So in the bottom, it'll say type message here, the very bottom line. Oh, yes, yes. And so Jeanette, find Judith. Click on Judith. <laughs> not there she's, yeah, not, she, she's actually two three people above you i see chat down here am i supposed to press you that click on chat it's within chat yeah gosh what's yeah. it i'm looking for again so click on chat at the bottom in the, the bottom bar yeah bring, bring the mouse down to the bottom bar and you'll see chat and then click on chat i do i've clicked on it three or four times now it's still just giving me nine uh, screens with all well, our names. Do you feel on comfortable them. just, just oh, give um, Jeanette your number? Right. Sure. If Jeanette will put down her number, or I'll put down mine. Okay. okay. Do you Jeanette, want to take my number? A, Jeanette, do you have a piece of paper? Well, I can't write anyway. I oh, okay. Okay. I'm going to uh, do it on my. Well, I'm going to get a pencil and take your number then. Oh, hi. I'm trying to get a number from a woman who's in the group. So, um, Jeanette, would you please give your number? I am doing that right now. Oh, oh. Can you verbally give your number? Well, I was just putting my email in during that right what area code are you? I'm 718. I don't know if they could hear me. That's Brooklyn, right? Pardon? Yes. You're in Brooklyn. Is that right? So I just put my email. That isn't what you were looking for. No, I think it, you know it'd be good to give um, Judith your phone number, and then she can call you. I've, I've got seven one eight. What comes next? Seven eight three. Seven eight three. Okay. Then what? Four eight nine one. Four eight one one. Okay, I'm going to try that either later. Nine one. No, when I hang, and when we. Four eight nine one, not one one. Four eight nine one. Okay. Lynn, you're so patient. Yeah. So I'll try it this evening when we 
sign off here. My daughters that? have to help me with things. With the, I mean, I I couldn't sign on to earlier to, um, you know, to my graduation. So my daughter had to help me. So we all help each other. Yeah, right. Forward. I've got. I'll ask you because I need to get into two graduations. I had two graduating last June. Neither one has gotten any acknowledgement that they graduated from Georgetown one and from Cornell the other. Right. So I'm trying to figure that one out too. All right, I have for you 718-783-49, no, 4891. Yeah, okay. All right. All right, I think I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go finish my dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't started mine yet either. Yeah. Thank you so much for these um, these evenings. They're really uh, wonderful. Yeah, isn't my it wonderful? Just showing all over the place. Yeah. I'm dancing. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's <laughs> great. And Jim, you're doing well. Uh, who? Good night, Jim. Hey. Hey, I'm gonna go eat dinner. Oh. So am I. Jay, Jay uh, to leave a little early. She got sore sitting down. Okay. Take care. But, but let's have dessert together. Okay. Take what care. Good night. Uh, nice to see all of you. What is that green uh, thing? Be well. Oh, what's that? Next to Judas, there's a green rectangle. With oh, it. that's just like a, I don't know. It's, I don't know what that is. Who knows? We'll just cook out. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.